0: We're going to, uh, as soon as my computer gets its act together, we're going to begin this morning looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, and uh, if you'd like, there's a Bible app event. You can open that up and follow along there for the scripture. Or you can open your own Bibles to Ezekiel. I'm sorry, Exodus. We're going to be in chapters 19 and 20. Exodus 19, and 20. Let me give you a, just a little heads up before we begin. We've been going through the Bible stories, and that's what we're doing now. This, this is the Bible story, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then I'm going to do the Ten Commandments. But in between there, there's a couple other sermons coming. There's a sermon on baptism coming next week. I'm going to talk about what does it mean to be baptized and things like that. And then there's also a sermon, uh, and a couple weeks later, on back to school, a back to school sermon. And then there's also baptism service uh, coming up as well. So we have those three things We're going to interrupt the Ten Commandments, uh, but it's all going to be a good time. I'm really looking forward to all of that. I'm looking forward today to talking to you about the Ten Commandments. This is a different kind of sermon than you're accustomed to over the past few weeks. We're not going to be moving through tons and tons of scripture. We're just going to look at it uh, as we go along here, a couple of different spots. So Exodus chapter 19 and 20 will be helpful to you. Years ago, I worked at a service station in the heart of Pittsburgh, right on Forbes Avenue uh, there. Um, it was a service station when service stations really were service stations. We could change tires, we could check your oil, we could give you oil, sell you oil, whatever we needed to do. And it was very interesting to be in the heart of Pittsburgh. I always had a night shift. It was very interesting to be in the heart of Pittsburgh, uh, especially on Friday and Saturday evenings. There were times that I, I went back to my apartment. I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh at the time. I went back to my apartment and I thought... I'm surprised I'm still alive, you know, because uh, there were some people that were kind of shady, to say the least. Friday and Saturdays were definitely entertaining nights because um, the out-of-towners were in there then. And uh, as they would come through the city of Pittsburgh, um, <laughs> I-, I can't recall how many of, this, of them did this, but they would pull in and they would say, I am lost. And I could tell they're lost because they're pulling into a service station in the heart of Pittsburgh and they're wearing clothes that say, you were just at Heinz Hall. Heinz Hall is nowhere near where you are right now. You are really lost. And sometimes they'd be crying. And my heart always went out to them. I can remember the one, one person individual came and said, I don't know how to get home. I need to find 28 North. And I hunkered right down and got my head level with hers. And I said, don't worry. I go that route every time I go home. I can tell you how to get out of here but you need to stop crying, and you need to pay attention, and got her out of the city safely. I really like helping people that way. One time, a woman came in, and she was crying, but it wasn't because she was lost. She was crying because her high beams were on, and she had quad headlights, and she didn't know how to make the low beams happen. This was in the early 80s, right? And you may or may not know this, but high beams used to be controlled by a little button on the floor. Do you remember that? And she's pushing buttons on the floor that aren't there, and they're still high beams. And everybody is, they're making a bad symbol at me. You know, they're giving her the universal symbol of disapproval. And she's very unhappy, and she's crying because she's very upset about this. By the way, this won't cost you anything extra. Take a look at that again. There were, that little round button there, that one dimmed your lights. But there were little round buttons on some cars that did two other things. Who knows? What's one of the other things? I don't think so. You may be right. You're the second person to say that. Maybe. Windshield wipers. Maybe there's three other things, right? What else? Okay, on a really old car, you would mash the starter in order to start it. And that would be a button on the floor. It was very similar to that, right? And we had a Chrysler Imperial. I think it was a 1968 Chrysler Imperial that had a button like that. And when you did, the little indicator on your radio went mechanically moved and stopped at the next radio station. That was how you change your radio stations. No charge for that. It has nothing to do with sermon. I just felt like telling you that today. Okay. How do I dim my lights? I don't know how to dim my lights. And I just reached in, and I pulled the turn signal back toward her, and the lights dimmed. And she goes, how would you do that? How, how did you do that? And I said, they're moving them to the actuator up here. Pull that. Oh, thank you, thank you, she said. And she was quite relieved at the guidance I gave her. You know, I have a a newer car. It's last year's model right now. And I can remember the first time I sat in it. And I thought, how do you do anything in this car? I mean, the car I replaced was 12 years old, and technology changed a lot. Fog lights, parking lights. How do you turn these off? How do you turn them off? Where does the key go? Where does the key go? Wait, there is no key. How how does this... And why? Why does it keep turning itself off? And as a result... (laughs) I found myself, for the first time in a long time, digging through what is called the owner's manual. Do you know how many pages the owner's manual is for my car? 557 pages. Yeah. I didn't read it all. No. But, without it, I would have been a little lost. How about you? Have you ever been lost? Now, I know every guy here is like, I've never been lost in my life. Bewildered for weeks on end, but never lost. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever needed the manual to know how to do something in your pickup truck? No. 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 Have you ever used YouTube to fix something? Maybe. (laughs) Do your little kids say I have? Maybe. Not saying. Who wants to know? Right? that feeling of being lost or not knowing what to do or not knowing how to proceed. It's it's common in our complex lives today. And it was certainly something that the people of Israel must have been experienced when they were leaving Egypt. The, the scripture says in, in the King James, for example, it would say they went into the wilderness. And when I was a little boy, I always thought that was like a jungle. I was looking for, you know, monkeys and stuff. But the wilderness is just a flat, barren desert with nothing but sand. How are we supposed to manage here? How are we supposed to function as a society? How are we supposed to, to know what's right and what's wrong? Because frankly, we've been slaves for generations, and we've never had this personal freedom before. How are we supposed to live? And so God, who is more gracious and tender than I was when I helped a woman with her turn signal or high and low beams, God, who is so loving and kind and gracious, gave them the law. He gave them instruction. Now, if you're looking at that picture, you might be saying, what's going on there? And it kind of looks like a Wild West scene to me. Um, It's actually much older than that, but it does, doesn't it? You see that it almost looks like train tracks going around the bottom of that mountain, right? That's not what that is. Those are the people of Israel. That is Mount Sinai. Not really, but it's a drawing of it. And that which is going around the bottom is a, a fence to protect them from the presence of God. And what's coming down upon them is the presence of God settling on Mount Sinai. We're going to be talking about the law that he gave there at Mount Sinai. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments in the weeks that are ahead. And the reason we're talking about them is they are incredibly relevant. I'm I'm not just stopping to do the Ten Commandments. I've skipped a lot of stories in our Bible stories saying, I could have skipped this one. I'm not just going to spend ten weeks on this to fill time. These are intensely relevant to us today because we live in a society that is thoroughly lost. If you can't say anything else about society, you must say, we just don't know right from wrong. It is safe to say there is no agreed-upon moral consensus in our day. And we tend to reject external authorities. We tend to act as though we're the ones individually who define what is true and what is right. In fact, we tend to say this. Well, I believe this is true for me. This is true for me. As though our opinion makes something true for us. It may or may not have been true previous to that, but now that I said it's true, it is true. Wow. It is no wonder... Our society is lost when it comes to measuring right and wrong. I mean, when someone asks you, you know, what should I decide here? Tell me what the right decision is. What is the morally right thing to do here? Quite frequently, the response is, well, you have to decide for yourself. You have to decide what's right for you. Now, in some cases, that might be an appropriate response. I can remember a dear woman in our church. She's gone to be with the Lord. She said to me, Pastor, I need to talk to you should I not be watching my stories in the afternoon? Do you know what she meant? She meant her soap operas, you know? She had grown up in a church that was somewhat legalistic. They really emphasized rules a lot in the church she grew up in. And evidently a preacher had said, you shouldn't be watching them soap operas. And she wondered, should I be watching? I said, you know what? I'm not gonna tell you the answer to that. You gotta figure that out for yourself. Because she does. Because it's not right or wrong to watch soap operas uniformly. But it might be wrong for her because of who she is and what's in her heart. Or it might be perfectly okay for her. But other times, that idea of you have to decide what is right for you is the absolute wrong answer to the question. This might sound a little crass, but that's exactly what Hannibal Lecter was doing, right? Do you know who that is? Silence of the Lambs. He was eating people, just in case you needed to know, right? Well, that's right for me. (laughs) No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Your news feed, and I'm not talking about your social media news feed where people are talking. I'm talking about where CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, where Newsmax, all of those news providers, their content is filled with stories of people who are trying to decide what is right and wrong for themselves and are failing miserably. Failing miserably. That's how Israel was. I mean, they hadn't gotten into any trouble just yet. But they're going to get in trouble later, and they have the law. Just imagine if they didn't have the law, the trouble they would have been in. And God saw that coming. So he gave them these guidelines, some laws to follow to help them along the way. Laws, and this is really important for you to hear, these are laws that were to benefit them, not to benefit him. They were to benefit them, and they benefit you, and they benefit me as well. So I want to talk about the Ten Commandments, and I kind of want to begin by just telling you maybe some stuff you didn't know about the Ten Commandments. I don't say that arrogantly, like, I'm going to tell you stuff you don't know. This is stuff that, that, I didn't know. Did you know they're not called the Ten Commandments in the Bible? They're not. In fact, if your Bible's open to Exodus 20, look at the very first word, a verse rather, it says, and God spoke all these words. And then you have the Ten Commandments that follow. It doesn't say, and God spoke the Ten Commandments. Now, indeed, in Deuteronomy, they are called the Ten Commandments. If you read Deuteronomy 4.13, in your English text, it says, he declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And so you might say, yeah, Pastor Steve, they're called the Ten Commandments. But if you knew Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, but I know people who know Hebrew and I read their books, if you read the people who read the books, I'm sorry, who wrote the books about Hebrew, they're going to tell you, it doesn't say commandments, it says the Ten Words, the Ten Words. The Hebrew is actually the Ten Words. Now, you might be kind of literalistic, and you might say, but there's more than 10 individual words there. But you need to think about like the seven last words of Christ. I remember when I first entered ministry, I went to the Ministerial Association, and they said, we're going to have each pastor preach at a different church on Good Friday, and you preach on the seven last words of Christ. And I thought, Well, they didn't cover that in Bible college. I'm not sure what that means. And I said, okay, what's my word? And I think they gave me, I am thirsty. And I thought, that's three words. Well, no, (laughs) the seven last words of Christ are seven last phrases or sentences that he gave from the Christ. It is finished. Behold your mother. I thirst. Those phrases, those sentences, we call them words, although they're groups of words. And likewise, the Ten Commandments are not individual words. They are sentences. They're commandments. But the Bible calls them the Ten Words. That's why some people call them the Decalogue. Deca, of course, you think of a decade, it's ten years. Log is from logos, which means word. The ten words. Okay? That's kind of trivial. The Bible never calls them Ten Commandments. Here's something else, though, you might not know. Not every church counts them the same. Wait, what? You mean like commandment number seven is different for one group of Christians than it is for the other group of Christians? Yeah, it actually is. I can remember when I first saw that. It was probably almost 20 years ago. I was speaking about the Ten Commandments. I'm like, whoa, Wikipedia has two different lists here. Which one's right? And I went to my Bible, and I looked, and I said, they're not numbered in a Bible. How will we know what the Fifth Commandment is? They're They're... Well, it's not an issue. They're not numbered in the Bible. They're just placed there. And they aren't numbered by Arabic numbers. They're not numbered by Roman numerals because there were word on. They're not numbered even by Hebrew numerals. They're just listed. And so the breakdown, you can break it down either way, whichever you wanted. Lutherans and Catholics, here's how they would break them down. Number one, no other gods, no images. Number two, no taking God's name in vain. Number three, remember the Sabbath. Number four, honor your father and mother. Number five, don't kill anybody. Number six, do not commit adultery. Number seven, do not steal. Number eight, do not bear false witness. Number nine, do not covet another person's house. And number 10, do not covet another person's wife, okay? The Lutherans and the Catholics, that's the way they break them down. Um, The Reformed people and the Orthodox people say, number one, no other gods. Number two, no images. Oh, you see what they did there? They took number one that the Lutherans and the Catholics have, and they made that into two. No other gods, no other images. Uh, they're going to have to put two of the other ones together if they're going to have 10. Otherwise, they'll have 11, right? Don't worry. They got it. Number three, no taking God's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, don't kill anybody. Don't commit adultery is number seven. Don't steal is number eight. Do not bear false witness is number nine. And number 10 combines the other number nine and 10, saying, just don't covet anything. Okay? which is right, which is wrong? Neither. It's just, it's just how they numbered things. It's kind of like verse numbering in our Bibles, you know? God didn't lay them out like these ten particular things with numbers. He just said, here they are. Here's the text. The words are same. Now you might be saying, so why did you tell me that, Pastor Steve? Because, because there are always people that seem to creep into people's lives and want to plant seeds of doubt. Huh. Did you know, Josh Thatchick, that your new church doesn't number the Ten Commandments like your old one? Did you know, Praton, that churches can't even agree on numbering of the Ten Commandments? I don't know how you can consider the Word of God important. You understand, there are people who would do that, right? Right? And so I'm telling you this just to say, don't worry about it. (laughs) We're probably going to use the list on the right. We could use the list on the left. It's all good because the content, the text, is the same no matter where you are. Here's number three The Ten Commandments are upheld in the New Testament, upheld in the New Testament. that doesn't mean that we're under law, we are not under law, but these Ten Commandments actually transcend the law of God. Think about what they contain. They contain warnings about idolatry, taking the Lord's name in vain, the importance of honoring your father and mother, not stealing, not bearing false witness, not coveting. All, All those things are stated in the New Testament as well. The only one that is technically not restated is concerning the Sabbath. Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But you can still argue that the concept of the Sabbath transcends the law because before Moses ever got the law on Mount Sinai, there was God saying day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and it is good, creating everything. And on the seventh day, what did he do? He Sabbathed. He rested. So even the concept of the Sabbath transcends the law. The commandments are upheld in the New Testament. One more thing you might not have known. Before this, the people of God had no written word from him. Think about that for a minute. No written word from God. The only way you knew who God was or what he was interested in or how to serve him or how to worship him, there were two ways that that could have happened. One is he might have told you personally. And he did that with Abraham, right? And with Jacob, we, we, we heard about that. We looked at those stories. He did that with Jacob in, in a dream, and Joseph in, in his dreams, right? The other way was if your ancestors told you it was handed down by oral tradition. But now, all of a sudden, when we come out of Egypt and we're in this desert wilderness, and we're at Mount Sinai, God begins to write things down for everyone. For everyone. I think What a blessing they must have felt that was. We are hearing straight from God. To any follower of God, that would be a blessing. Now, as we prepare to think about the Ten Commandments, I kind of would like to just talk to you about the perspective I hope that you'll have in your heart as we walk into this series. And, and, and it's a helpful perspective. It's a healthy perspective. It's even an essential perspective. I want to talk to you about that. And First, it involves realizing that the Ten Words are authoritative. These are not ten habits of highly effective people. These are not ten keys to successful living. These are not ten ideas to make your marriage better or ten ideas to living your best life. These are ten words from God. Ten words from him to his people. It is what God says to the people. And probably the first and most basic mistake, maybe even the most common mistake we can make concerning the ten words, is not taking them seriously enough. God wants you to take them seriously. And I can show you that by having you look at the text you opened to earlier in chapter 19 of Exodus in verse 16. Just, just think about the context in which God reveals these 10 words to his people. Follow along as I read starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp Trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. That means he came down upon it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against him. So Moses went down to the people and told them. You ever wonder, why all the drama? <laughs> why? <coughs> Pardon me. Why does God display His glory in deep darkness, in thunder, in fire, in lightning, in earthquakes, so the ground trembles? And why that loud trumpet blast? I want you to imagine a blast so loud that you can't talk to the person next to you. Why is that happening? Here's why. God is showing them that He is holy. That He alone is awesome. I tend to think the sealers are awesome. They are not. He, oh, who said amen? Probably some Browns fan. (laughs) He alone is holy. He alone is awesome. He alone is transcendent. He alone is terrifying. He is not a tame lion. And he wants them to know that. But he isn't just flexing his muscles to show off. He is doing this because he knows it is imperative that they listen. And if they do not listen, if they do not listen, they will fall back into enslavement. What is about to happen, this giving of the Ten Commandments, is the next step in their emancipation. And if they don't get it, well, history tells when they didn't follow it, they did fall back into bondage. So God wants them to get the point. By the way, did you happen to notice he didn't check with Moses before he did this? He didn't check with anyone before he did it. He's God. And he writes these commandments down himself in stone with his own finger. So there's no possibility of anyone misunderstanding what they say or where they come from. But do we understand them? Do we? Let's switch out of the nation of Israel and let's switch over to you and me. How familiar are you with the Ten Commandments? (laughs) I don't know. uh, Years ago, do you remember this? Years ago, there were some people... um, from out of the area who came to Clearfield and wanted to remove the 10 commandment, commandment marker from the front of the local courthouse. How many remember that happening? Yeah. Okay, good. A number of you remember that happening. I, I gotta tell you, people were angry. I went to the courthouse meeting. It was the packedest, most packed courthouse I've ever seen. You know, just wall-to-wall people there wanting to tell the county commissioners, don't you dare do this. Those are important to us. And, and whenever these angry people would bump into a pastor, they had to just tell the pastor, because here's someone who will feel the same as me. So they bring up the topic, whether I was at a high school football game, or if I was at a restaurant, or if I was in Walmart, or if I were at a park somewhere. Pastor Steve, did you see that they want to take down those Ten Commandments from the courthouse? And we talk about that, and I understand. That is frustrating. I didn't want to see them come down either. But in the course of the conversation, I would often ask this question. Ten commandments are important. Do you think if I gave you a pencil and a piece of paper right now, you'd be able to write them all down? I mean, not in order. Do you think you could just write them all down? And uh, that probably didn't win me any friends. (laughs) But I was young and didn't understand social things like I understand them today. Yeah, I, I really found it odd, though, that we as people could be so riled up and angry about the removal of something with which we only had a casual familiarity. Hmm. The Ten Words, they're not a monument, they're authoritative. You can choose to be casually familiar with them or not familiar with them at all, but that does not change them. If you ever watch The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, who, by the way, if I get to heaven, and Moses doesn't look like Charlton Heston, I'm going to be a little disappointed. If you ever watch The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, in that classic movie, Cecil B. DeMille, who put that movie together, has these two sentences. It is impossible for us to break the law. We can only break ourselves against the law. It is authoritative. And second, it is relational. The ten words are relational. The first three or four are about your relationship with God, and the remaining ones are about our relationship with one another. They're personally given to us by a personal God. They're not given to us by some detached God, the man upstairs in a distant place. They're not even given to us by the God who's sitting in the Oval Office scattering the laws across the land. The the, the ten words are given by God to people he knows, people he created. He crafted. They are given by God to people he loves, people he redeemed. They are given by God to people he has brought to himself from captivity. People he wants to be with. And you see that in verse 4 of chapter 19. Take a look at it. It says, you yourself have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself Do you hear the beauty of that? I carried you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. And I brought you, and notice he doesn't say, and I brought you to the promised land. He says, I brought you to me, to myself. In Exodus 20, verse two, look at that. It says, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He freed them in person. The 10 words are relational because God himself is relational. The 10 words are a good, good father speaking to his children relationship. He established that relationship centuries earlier. God made a promise to Abraham to bless him and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was one of the Bible stories we studied a few months ago. In in that time of famine, it was Abraham's children, the children of Israel specifically, who went down to Egypt and were saved. At his instruction, he went down there because he loves them and he personally directed them to go there. And then they become slaves, rather, and, and, and as slaves are finally liberated, and they come up to Mount Sinai here, and, and you might be wondering, what's going on with the plan? It is running as scheduled. Because he personally is seeing to it that it is, because he never abandons his people. And he will never abandon you. The ten words let us know that he is our God, that he is on our side, that he gently carries us away from bondage, and that he wants us Near him, everything God does here is because He wants a relationship with His children, and it's because of His great love. Take a look at verse 19, I'm sorry verse five, rather of chapter 19. Listen to the loving language that's in 195 and six: "If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you." will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. That language reminds me a little bit of a wedding ceremony. Forsaking all others I take you to have and to hold, to love and to cherish from this day forward. Powerful words of commitment. Those are the words of God's love. Those are the words that precede the 10 words. The 10 words are authoritative. They're relational. And the third perspective you should have is that they are eternal. Eternal. Have you heard people say, you know, the Ten Commandments, that's not for us today. We're under grace. We're not under the law. Indeed, that is true. That is true. We are under grace, not under the law. But that doesn't mean the Ten Commandments are irrelevant to you and me today. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, no thinking believer would really think that Jesus' death means it's okay for us to bear false witness. And Jesus' death means it's okay for us to abandon the Sabbath. We don't have to have a Sabbath yeah that's for people who are under the law we're under grace, we can steal, we can covet, we can commit an adultery we're good to go. No thinking believer would actually think that way. Those actions are contrary not just to the law of God but to the very nature of God, and the ten words are eternal because they are in harmony in concert with his divine nature that is eternal. You know there's another ancient moral law, legal law. Do you know about that? It's called The Code of Hammurabi. How many have ever read it? Yeah, good for you. Not one hand went up except my wife. It was kind of like this, and what that means is I read it, but I don't remember any of it, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I married the smart girl. Hammurabi's <laughs> code contains 200 laws, It 280 laws, pardon me. It proceeds, scholars say, it proceeds The law of Moses, which is being given here at Sinai, by by several centuries. It's thought to have been written maybe 1,780 years B.C. It's kind of funny. (laughs) Let me read you a couple of laws. I find it entertaining. Of course, I have that warped sense of humor. You know what I mean? Listen to this. This is number two. So this is near the beginning. There's 280. I'm not going to read them all. I'm only going to read two of them. Here's the first one. It's number two. If anyone bring an accusation against a man, and the accused go to the river and leap into the river. If he sink, wow, I'm having Monty Python flashbacks right now, right? right yeah. <laughs> and the accused go to the river and leap into the river. If he sink in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river prove that the accused is not guilty and he escape unhurt. Then he who had brought the accusation will be put to death, while he who leaped into the river shall take possession of the house that had belonged to the accuser. You know what? That is going to end a lot of frivolous lawsuits, isn't it? Right now. (laughs) That would clear up our courts pretty well. But it's kind of crazy, you know? And I want to tell you this. If you didn't know how to swim, you never told anyone that, right? Never mention that you don't know how to swim. Live as far away from the river as you can, you know? Here's another. This is number 218. If a physician make a large incision with an operating knife and kill him, or open a tumor with the operating knife and cut out his eye, sounds like they'd have some experience here, right? The hands of the physician will be cut off. That'll take care of malpractice right now, right? And think how cheap healthcare would be if you could get it, right? <laughs> yeah. You read over that and it's comical. It's so outdated. It's so irrelevant. It is nothing like the 10 words. Nothing like the 10 words. It doesn't matter that God gave these laws 3,500 years ago, halfway across the globe. Those laws were not new when God gave them, right? They are eternal moral truths that spring from God's eternal moral nature. For the most part, they're written on our consciences the conscience of humans. We know it's wrong to murder. We know it's wrong to steal, to lie, to cheat, to blaspheme. And that is why the Ten Commandments aren't just tied to the Old Testament. They are changeless moral authority given by a loving God to his creation. They're a gift to us. I want to wrap up by telling you a story. And I'm going to have to read a lot of it because you'll understand why in a minute. So, you know, I have a son, I have a daughter. You know, my daughter, her husband's father, so her father-in-law, his name is Steve. And listen to this sentence. He is brilliant. Okay? Steve is brilliant. His undergraduate work was done at Cornell University. They don't just let anybody into those Ivy Lake schools, you know. I didn't even bother trying. <laughs> I'm not sure I have this right. I took this from his LinkedIn page. Here's what it says. He studied at Cornell University in his undergraduate work deformation of cross-linked and entangled polymers. I kept meaning to study that, but I kept forgetting. <laughs> All right? Later, he was a process development engineer where he worked with thin film process development for LEDs and photo detectors for optical communication. You know, he's not just plugging things into circuit boards, right? All right. Hmm. By the way, he's a strong believer in Christ. So when you hear people say that intelligent people don't believe the Bible, they don't know what they're talking about. Let me continue. After earning his PhD at the University of Massachusetts, he was a professor at Case Western Reserve, which is no small school, no insignificant school. He studied and taught about electron and light, microscopy of polymers, emulsions, and sulfur. Let me try it again. Surfactants and surfactant like self assembly. I can't even pronounce it. (laughs) For the past two decades, he has been a physical scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The current emphasis (coughs) is on protein rheology. You know what that is, right? Um, Including aggregation of interfacial rheology. Oh, thank God for that. They develop methods of analysis and measurement of fluid and interfacial properties. Wow. Did I mention he's brilliant? Did I mention that? Well, whenever we fly over to see my daughter, we go down to his house and pick up whatever he might want to put, give them, into the suitcases, and then he takes my car with my suitcase and my wife and I in, and he drives us to the airport. And did I mention I got a new car? (laughs) He got into my car, the one with the 557-page owner's manual, to drive us to the airport. Where's the key? Where do I put the key? Why is it beeping at me? It's helping me steer. Why is it helping me steer? It told him. I love this. It told him. Please keep your hands on a wheel. <laughs> and, and it was kind of overwhelming. I wonder if he felt maybe just a little bit like, although I doubt he's ever felt that this, this way, but a little bit like the woman in Pittsburgh who's like, how do I dim my lights, right? How do I dim my lights? Yeah. Here's a tie in that I want you to hear. (laughs) You may be the smartest one in the room. You may be deeply committed to Christ. You may have a strong moral compass and a good sense of what is right and what is wrong. You may have a strong conscience, but you are navigating unfamiliar territory every day of your life dangerous territory, every day of your life. And God knew ahead of time that you would be traversing this dangerous terrain, a desert wilderness in this world, and he knew ahead of time you would need some guidance, and so he gave you 10 words. 10 words to help you along the way. I want to pray that in the weeks that are ahead that we'll understand them and be able to apply them so that they would sustain us and keep us on the right path. Can I pray that way for you? Let's stand together and we'll pray. By the way, I just want to say this. I'm so glad I didn't have to read four chapters of scripture to you today. (laughs) Uh, It was nice to be preaching this kind of a sermon. I love those two, though. Okay, refocus. Here's what we're doing. You're standing before God. You're knowing, next week we're going to talk about baptism, but after that we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. You know, in the next couple months we'll probably be on those. There'll be 10 weeks of sermons at least coming from those, right? So what you're saying before God is, even now, God, please prepare my heart to hear that. Please help me see in the days between now and then how I really need guidance from you. Give me that. So that's what this prayer is. So let's bow our hearts and pray it together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you love us, that you have not freed us and then just left us to wander around in the desert to die. But you give us everything we need. I pray, Father, for everyone here that each of us has come to a place in their their spiritual thinking to realize that you, Jesus, have died for our sins and that they have turned their heart to trust you as the one who paid their way to heaven and they are following you. And as we follow you, we need hearts that are open that have a perspective to understand that your words are authoritative, that what they say is not subject to our whims. And that's okay because they're relational. And you gave them to us with such love, like a loving father, like a faithful bridegroom. And they are eternal. I would pray, Father, that we would receive them in that way, not just in the weeks that are ahead, but all the time. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.